This is Conducting Business. I'm Naomi Lewin. New York's Department of Cultural Affairs is embarking on the first comprehensive effort to measure racial and ethnic diversity at the city's museums, venues, and performance groups. The effort, which was announced on Monday, will collect information on the demographics of employees, boards, and visitors at arts organizations to see if they're keeping up with the increasingly multicultural makeup of the city. With us now is Tom Finkelpearl, head of the Department of Cultural Affairs. Why this survey? Uh, well, first I want to just say that the, the kind of diversity that you just mentioned, racial diversity, is where we're starting. There are actually some good statistics on that nationally, but we're also interested in gender and disability, etc. So those will be playing into it later. The statistics that we've seen from elsewhere show that, you know, a very large sector of the employees and, and boards and uh, at cultural institutions are, are white. And we're in a city right now that is already 60, 65 percent of people do not describe themselves as white. And, you know, this is about the future and about what will the sort of place of cultural institutions in New York City be in the city of the future. So this is more than just a human resources kind of thing. Do you see that groups are just not recruiting enough? I mean, I think, first of all, I think that there are probably very big differences between different parts of the cultural sector. And let me also say that, that, you know, we fund also zoos, gardens, science-oriented. So this is not just about the arts. But uh, I think that there might be differences between, let's say, music and dance and the visual arts. We want to find that out first find out what the kind of uh, best practices are for diversifying staffs. Look, I, I worked at the Queens Museum for 12 years. And in, in the first six years or so of my time there, we were working on this diversity issue. By the way, I inherited a relatively diverse staff by contemporary museum standards. And so in the National Football League, there's something called the Rooney Rule. And Rooney was the owner of the Pittsburgh Steelers. And there was a, quite a, a lack of black head coaches and general managers so Rooney said, from now on, for every general manager or coaching job at the Pittsburgh Steelers, we will interview a minority candidate. And guess what? They hired a, a very good coach. He's won the Super Bowl. He brought them to the playoffs again this year. And that rule was adopted by the National Football League, and it doubled the diversity level of the coaches and general managers. We had a rule like that at the Queens Museum, which is, I will interview the finalists of all candidates for non-security and maintenance jobs. And there has to be a diversity in that pool. And then, you know, once you're in the room being interviewed, you're on your own. It's about hiring the best candidate from a diverse pool. So just simple rules like that can, can help. Uh, that's just a hiring rule. There are pipeline issues. A lot of people say, you know, how can we have a diverse staff when everybody coming out of graduate school is white? You know, we have PhD candidates in Byzantine art tend to be white people. So this is one of the questions. There, there are pipeline questions. There are hiring practice questions. And none of this is going to be done overnight. We're not expecting by the end of the fiscal year to have super diverse uh, staffs and boards at uh, cultural So how are you going to conduct this survey? So what we want to do, it was the, the plan now, and, and we're still working on this to finalize it, is to work with a private outside organization with private funding. So we want them to collect the data. And we have a very robust number of organizations applying to us for funding. And we're going to ask those organizations who are applying to us, about 1,200 groups in New York City, to go to this separate site, this uh, survey mechanism, 
and fill out their numbers. And so then we're going to have numbers that are more generic than just, you know, how many people of color work at a particular cultural organization. And how are you going to verify this if they are filling out the numbers? How are you going to verify that they're not kind of... <laughs> I have to say that that given the fact that it is a little bit arm's length, I think people, there's no motivation to lie. I don't think our cultural groups are going to lie on this survey. I really think I'm, we're going to rely on their honesty. But also the idea that the numbers that are going to come out of this are going to be more general numbers. So it's going to be, you know, programmers in music groups tend to be of this profile and um, curators of arts institutions are in this profile. So we'll have those and then we're going to know where the most work needs to be done. The other thing is that, <clears throat> look, we're a city agency. We have to have data before we create policy. So the fact that there's anecdotal evidence that there's a very, you know, non, let's say, non-representative group of people programming arts institutions, that's not a basis of policy. A basis of policy is real numbers that we have acquired through a real process. So until we have those numbers, we're not going to actually set the policy. But in the meantime, we want to start sharing best practices because we have a sense that people really want to diversify their staffs. When I talk to boards and, and staffs and boards and audiences, when I talk to cultural groups all the time, People are saying, how can we reach New York City? I mean, that's true for, for QXR. That's true for WNYC. It's true for everybody. I know that you in this station are looking to figure out how to communicate better to the entire city of New York. Absolutely. Aaron Dworkin runs the Sphinx Organization, which is a nonprofit that advocates diversity in classical music. And he has called on American orchestras to devote 5% or more of their budget to diversity initiatives. And he's also said that the philanthropic community should be f giving funding to minority recruitment. Mm -hmm. What do you First think? First of all, I mean, we have to at a certain point get past the word minority. In New York City, it's not a minority. It's true. Uh, there is no majority. I mean, that's the interesting thing. It's not that, you know, it's now become a majority Latino city or something like that. It just is a very diverse city. So, well, I, I guess mean, that's minority when it comes to classical music yes. because when you look at a stage full of classical musicians, you will see a fair number of Asians and very few black or Latino musicians. And by the way, I'm a big classical music fan and I... I, it's very apparent when you go to concerts. It's less apparent when you're on the radio. I think that sounds like a wonderful idea. My question for uh, an initiative like that is, what actually gets people into the pipeline to the point of actually getting a seat at an orchestra? So the question of, let's say, having a lot of uh, music taught in high schools, that is great. I'm all for it. The number one arts initiative of this administration is reintegrating the arts into the public school system of New York City. And by the way, for your listeners, what we found there is that as bad as things are in some, some cases for the visual arts, things are much worse for the performing arts. So you might have an art teacher, but you're very unlikely to have a music or dance or theater teacher in public school right now. But the question is not that, I mean, to me, in terms of this initiative, in terms of the initiative you just described, it's all fine and good to get kids into, in high school to be playing instruments. What gets them to go to conservatory? What gets the kids in conservatory to stay on to have a classical music career? So it's not just one step. And I think actually my experience is mostly in the visual arts. A lot of it has to do with not just the moment of going to school, but the social networks that are created. And how do we create access to social networks uh, for a more diverse group of uh, 
of participants. And again, what we're talking about here is not necessarily just the performers. And I know you're talking about walking into a theater and seeing the people on stage. What about the staff of that organization? Who is the stage manager? What about the stage hands? What about the, the head of personnel? What about the executive director and the deputy director and the boards? Well, you did, however, mention music education. Are you going to be able to come up with funding to promote music education? Yes. So the, the administration has added $24 million of baseline money to the arts education budget of the Department of Education. Most, a lot of that is going to music education. There's Lincoln Center Institute right now is partnering with Hunter College to do some kind of something called uh, alternative certification, get, gets music and drama and theater teachers into the schools while they're becoming certified as public school teachers. So yes, that's happening already. Uh, it's not enough, I think. Uh, I think the administration would like to do more, but that's a big step towards, you know, if you think of that, what the philanthropic world can do, uh, $24 million a year in perpetuity, essentially, that's a commitment. So shifting gears slightly, there's been a lot of talk about the challenge of being an artist in New York City, especially with the price of real estate the way it is. Galapagos Art Space recently said that they're going to leave Brooklyn for Detroit because of rising rents. What kind of help can your office give with this? There's another part of that, aside from real estate, which I think it has to be thought about, and that has to do with student debt. So what happens right now, I, I came to New York City as an artist. I got here in 1979. I got my Master's of Fine Arts degree at Hunter College when it was $800 a semester, but I was part-time, so it was 400 a semester. I remember that I came out with no debt. I was working three days a week delivering flowers and jobs like that. It just wasn't expensive, and there wasn't a lot of debt in my generation. So it's the combination of that student debt and real estate prices that are, are. So first of all, I think I have some good news. I talked to a gentleman named Joe Salvo, who's the demographer for city planning, and who has the statistics of who's moving into New York City and who's moving out. So from 2002 to 2012, a lot of the population growth in New York City was young, educated people moving to the city and you know this is including the net increase but was 250,000 people. So we haven't come yet to the point where young people are, are not coming, right? So what's happening, though, is that, that there's this worry. There are these articles. It's occasional, you know, art space might move out. Many are moving in. So, I mean, I can tell you a couple of things that we're doing. Uh, but I think that this requires, you know, a comprehensive look at, at the affordability of New York City. So affordable housing, which is a big de Blasio administration priority, is important for artists also. And we want artists to think of themselves as low-income individuals who qualify for housing. One of the problems with a lot of visual artists is they don't even qualify for the minimum earnings to get into subsidized housing. So you have to have some earnings. So we have a program called SpaceWorks, uh, which was started under the last administration. And all hail to this wonderful project that we're continuing. And that is building low-cost studio space and rehearsal space for artists. And it's acquiring property. A lot of the capital money is coming from, from my agency. And so it's one thing, you know, to have a problem, uh, you know, and you're moving in and with a bunch of friends. But what if you don't have the rehearsal space or studio space to actually make your work? So that's one way we've been trying to impact that affordability question. 
But I think the affordability question is true for low-income folks across the board or even middle-income. It's not just artists. Before we let you go, there <clears throat> has been talk off and on for over a decade about a new arts center at the World Trade Center. But things seem to have sort of gotten stalled out there. Why has it taken so long, and do you see any progress on that? Um, so that's something that it's not on city property. I guess the question then is, does the city need another arts center at the World Trade Center? We've got a new culture shed coming to the far west side. Listen, we're, we're pro-cultural activity. And I'm not going to in any way try to, to say anything negative about a new cultural center. It seems that the, you know, the growth of the cultural sector uh, in New York City, uh, it's still expanding. And, and this could be a wonderful contribution. We will continue to watch that and to watch your survey and the results of that. Thank you very much for joining us today. It's been my pleasure. Thank you so much. Thomas Finkelpearl is the head of New York City's Department of Cultural Affairs. You can read more about the diversity plans on our website, wqxr.org. Brian Weiss produces Conducting Business. I'm Naomi Lewin. Thanks for listening.